The Disney company <clears throat> is worth over 100 billion US dollars. How? Well, Walt Disney made a killing selling us fairy tales. Why do we love fairy tales? Fairy tales appeal to us because they, they, they help us imagine something beautiful, uh, an, enchanted land, an enchanted land, uh, an answer for evil, uh, a land of happily ever after. Fairy tales help us escape a, a world that feels somewhat ordinary and, and, and sad by, by helping us imagine a, a world that is extraordinary and, and beautiful. Fairy tales appeal to our desire for beauty. That's one of the reasons why uh, the human race is distinguished between the animal kingdom. We, we crave beauty. Your, your dog won't sit at the, the beach contemplating the beauty of a sunset. Animals don't queue up at art galleries. They, 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 don't, they don't analyze or, or stand in awe of a, the artistry of a, a musical masterpiece. We humans have this insatiable desire for beauty, and we have this unique capacity to actually appreciate beauty, don't we? But why? Why do we crave beauty? Beautiful music and beautiful stories, beautiful landscapes, beautiful ideas. C.S. Lewis, the author of the famous Chronicles of Narnia, says this. We're back. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger? Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim? Well, there is such a thing as water. Humans feel sexual desire? Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Could it be that our desires for the world of, of, of fairy tales actually points us to the fact that we were made for a world more beautiful than this. If you're visiting with us today, this is actually the third talk in our Christmas series where we've been answering uh, three questions about the Christmas story. Back one. There you go. Is it true? Is it good? And is it beautiful? Now, this triad of, of truth, goodness, and beauty dates all the way back to the ancient Greek philosophers, Aristotle and Plato. It, and it, it's been used as a set of a criteria uh, over about the last few millennia as um, a criteria for evaluating how so the worthiness of anything from architecture to literature to ideas. Is it true? Is it good? Is it beautiful? Now, I'm not going to answer all three of those questions tonight. We already attempted to answer one of those questions two weeks ago. Is the Christmas story true? If you're interested in that talk, you can go to our website, rotherham.ec, and you can find that full talk there. But I'll give you my quick 30-second answer. I think it's true. The story isn't told at all like a fairy tale. All the features of genuine history are found in this story. Times, locations... Names, cultural customs. The fact that Jesus of Nazareth was a real human figure who, who lived and, and taught in Judea of Israel and then died due to Roman crucifixion is completely verifiable by any reasonable attempt at historiography. 
And this is not a story simply that has been believed to be true in one region or one culture. No, millions, billions of people have believed this story to be true for the last 2,000 years. Young and old, rich and poor, educated, uneducated, British, African, Chinese, Indian, American. This story may be extraordinary, but it doesn't claim to be ordinary, does it? It claims to be the climactic point of human history. If there were a time where something extraordinary would be true, it would be here. Now, in my experience, the, the, the reason people disbelieve this story or don't believe it's true is, is not usually because they've done some thorough historical investigation. Now, in my experience, they disbelieve it because they disbelieve that anything outside of this material universe could be true. Or, or that anything outside of this material universe could ever interact with the material universe. But that, of source, is, is a belief that cannot be proved, can it? Is it good? Is the Christmas story good? Well, I guess that depends on your definition of good, right? But let's just look at it for a second. It, the, the Christmas story promotes humility, kindness, love, compassion, justice, mercy. It's impeccably good. Is it beautiful? Well, that's where I want to park for a few minutes tonight. Now, beauty isn't easy to define, is it? You know, it's one of those things that you kind of know it when you see it, or when, even better yet, when you feel it. That's why I played the music earlier. You don't find beauty in a definition, do you? It's, it's one of those things where having experienced, you, you know you've seen it or you've felt it. You know, most of the things that you and I come to believe to be true, we don't believe to be true because we've done some thorough investigation. Most of the time, the things that we believe to be true, we believe to be true because we find them beautiful. And therefore, we believe them to be true. We're seekers of beauty. So today, I want you to see the beauty of the Christmas story. I, even more, I want, you to, I want you to see a story that's so beautiful, you want it to be true. That's very much the case for me. The story comes to us in four acts. And the first act of the Christmas story begins with communion. Next slide, please. Communion is not a word we use very often. It's an, it's an intimate relational fellowship. Kind of a fellowship like the Knights of the Round Table or the Lord of uh, the, the Fellowship of the Rings, except communion is, is slightly deeper. It's, it's, an, it's a fellowship of deep intimacy and unity. There are four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John's biography of Jesus begins not with the birth of Jesus, as you might expect. It actually begins before the creation of the world. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. That's the Son of God. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The first thing that John wants you to understand about the Christmas story is that the Son of God was not created at Bethlehem. He existed alongside the Father from before creation. If your picture of God, you know, you just imagine God way back when, 
is this kind of old grandfatherly wizard twiddling his thumbs out of boredom because he has nothing to do. Friends, you have never encountered how God reveals himself in the Bible. God is yet is one, but he has always been this sweet fellowship of three. Jesus gives us a glimpse in that relationship in chapter 17 of John's biography. Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says, Father, I want, I want my, my, my followers to see the glory that you and I shared before creation because you loved me before creation. God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit exist before creation in perfect communion, perfect fellowship of glory and love. And that biblical word for glory is is so close to beauty. And that means that when you go looking back and back into the history and the the histories before history, what you find at the bedrock of the universe is something profoundly beautiful. A communion, a fellowship of divine persons sharing love and glory and beauty. Act 2 of the Christmas story is at the cradle. Next slide. The beautiful comes to the unbeautiful. God the Son leaves the safety and security and love of divine fellowship in order to rescue the unlovely. Matthew's biography records this rescue mission in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is God with us. He enters into a world marked by fragility, a world marked by death, a world of corruption. And the Son of God enters in at the most vulnerable of circumstances. He's an infant, unsanitary conditions political unrest. He's he's chased by a bloodthirsty king. It was Christmas season eight years ago when uh, then Prince of Wales, Prince William, did something remarkably noble and humble. He slept in the bitter cold of the streets of London between a few wheelie bins near Blackfriars Bridge, and he did this, of course, to empathize with the homeless in the streets of London. He wanted to raise awareness for the homeless, and the media applauded him, as they should have. And yet, he had security guards nearby. He only did it for a single night, and the public venerated him. Jesus was truly vulnerable. No security guards present. He didn't lower himself for one evening, but for a lifetime. And he descends from a position of authority and glory far superior to Prince William. Jesus' mission is not simply to identify with us or raise awareness. No, he comes to save us, to rescue us from sin and death. The third act of the Christmas story is at the cross. Now, you might be thinking, haven't we gone beyond Christmas now, Luke? I mean, not at all. You can't talk about the mission of Jesus in coming to earth without talking about the actual rescue mission. Matthew 1, verses 21. 
Mary will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The biography of John uh, introduces is Jesus as, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's a sacrificial lamb, not a, not a cuddly lamb. You see, Jesus comes to address the evil in our world, but not evil in the abstract. He comes to address our evil, your evil. And so hanging on a Roman cross, he identifies with our sin. He's a sacrificial lamb slaughtered for our evil. One writer says, at the birth of Jesus, there's, there's brightness at midnight, and now at the death of Jesus, there is darkness at noon. That fellowship of love between the Father and Son that existed before creation is now broken on a Roman cross because the, the Son has the sin hanging on him, and, and the Father is too holy to commune with sin. The Apostle Paul tells us what happened on the cross. He says, uh, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This is the stuff of fairy tales, isn't it? I was telling the children a few weeks ago in our children's talk that my favorite fairy tale is Beauty and the Beast. And it's a reflection of this story. Belle, the, the beautiful, goes, descends upon a dangerous castle in order to rescue her father. But, but really, she's going to rescue the hideous beast, isn't she? And it is through her sacrifice and love for the unlovely that reverses the curse of the beast. But it's not just the curse of the beast, is it? It's the curse, she reverses the curse for the whole castle, for his whole kingdom. And that's true of Jesus. The curse of sin hasn't just touched a few of us. It has touched every square inch of the universe, according to the Bible. That's why we sing that famous Christmas carol we're about to sing in a few minutes. Joy to the world. And, and one of the verses says, Christ comes to make his blessings flow. How far? Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Christ reverses the curse everywhere. The final act of the Christmas story is a crown. At Christmas, we love singing Christmas carols. Well, I want to show you the first ever Christmas carol. In a letter to the church in Philippi, the Apostle Paul writes what most scholars believe is an ancient hymn. And this is really a, a Christmas hymn. And the latter half reads like this. Being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In the Christmas story, it's through death that Jesus is crowned king. The true king, the the good king, the beautiful king. Jesus comes to save us and bring us in, not only, but into a beautiful kingdom. Isn't this the pattern of every fairy tale? You're caught in a world of pain, surrounded by corruption. You're locked in the tower, and you can't save yourself. 
So you wait for the good king to come. Slay the dragon. Reverse the curse. Rescue you from the dungeon and bring you into a kingdom where life is happily ever after. The king of the Christmas story does even more. He not only brings us into beauty, he makes us beautiful. In one of the final scenes of the Bible, the people of Christ's kingdom are transformed from these unlovely sinners into a beautiful bride that has been washed and has been cleaned and has been dressed in white, beautiful, bright clothing. We're made beautiful. The Christmas story is a story of beauty. It begins with communion where where beauty exists from the beginning and then it descends into a cradle where the beautiful comes to the unbeautiful. It then suffers a cross where the beautiful becomes unbeautiful. And then it ends in a crown where we are made beautiful and we are brought into a beautiful kingdom. In fact, we're brought into the love and glory and beauty that's shared between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That's the Christmas story. The descent of something beautiful in order to make the unbeautiful beautiful. C.S. Lewis, before his conversion to Christianity, had a dilemma. You see, he was an intellectual man. He was a seeker of truth. But he was enchanted by beauty and loved goodness. And Lewis speaks about this conflict that existed in his mind when he says this, Nearly all that I loved I believed to be imaginary. And nearly all that I believed to be real I thought to be grim and meaningless. It wasn't until his friend, J.R.R. Tolkien, suggested to him that the Christmas story is where everything that he loved about the fantasy world intersected with reality, with history. Lewis would later come to believe in the Christ of that Christmas story. And he would say later that the Christmas story, the gospel story, is the singular true myth which all other myths point. Is this Jesus, this human figure who walked the dusty roads of Nazareth, is he true? Is he good? Is he beautiful? Well, friends, if he is, then he should be embraced. We're going to sing one more song, Joy to the World. And as, as, our, uh, as our band comes up to sing, I'm going to close with a, a short prayer. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for sending your, your beautiful son to us. The unbeautiful, the sin, the, the sinners, the corrupt ones, the ones with evil in our hearts. 
Father, thank you for allowing him to identify with our sin and therefore crush sin and death on the cross. And Lord, thank you for transforming us into a beautiful kingdom. Father, we pray for people who haven't embraced Jesus in this congregation tonight that they would do so. We ask this in your beautiful name. Amen.